you can now support me financially with a small monthly donation. If you do, I pledge to use your money to buy yarn and coffee. Follow the link in my Instagram bio or in this episode's description to learn more. Thank you and enjoy today's episode. Disclaimer before we get started, I am not a doctor or a medical professional. This podcast is not meant to give medical advice or education, merely entertainment. If you have a medical question, please ask your doctor. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Crocheting Through Medical History. I'm Maria, here to crochet and talk about medical history. Back again with subpar video quality, but I think that the mic is my friend today. Today I will be crocheting um, a, a simple bucket hat that I think that I can finish in a week for some reason because I want to wear it next week. So we'll see if that like actually happens, but you can see me try. I have this much so far, so I think we're doing pretty good personally. I've said zero words today up until right now, so I'm very sorry that I sound like this. Alrighty, so today we are talking about diabetes mellitus, which is like the overarching type of 1, 2, and gestational diabetes. Feeling good so far. Why can't I talk? Oh no. <laughs> Starting off, ancient Egyptians in 1500 BC recorded a condition that is now known to be diabetes mellitus, in which the afflicted experienced excessive urination, thirst, and weight loss. The Egyptians recommended eating only whole grains to reduce the symptoms and supplemented treatment with plant extracts. In ancient India in 400 BC, physician Sushruta used ants to test urine for diabetes, if the ants were drawn to the urine, it contained sugar and was coined madhumaha, or honey urine. Sushruta noticed the presence of honey-like urine was more prevalent in upper-class citizens that were able to overindulge in carb-filled foods like rice, cereal, and sweets. In 300 BC, the word diabetes was first used by Ap Apollonius, the Memphis, and Greek physicians later distinguished between diabetes mellitus, meaning sweet, and diabetes insipidus, meaning tasteless. For other people out there that may be confused about all the different types of diabetes, me too, or if you went to vet tech school and then your professor was talking about like diabetes insipidus and diabetes mellitus and you were like, well, which one is like type 1 and type 2? And then in two years, you never learn that both type 1 and type 2 are diabetes mellitus, in which it is a sugar problem not being removed from the bloodstream. That's what diabetes mellitus is. So the unconverted glucose is excreted in the urine, so it gives it a sweet taste. Wow, diabetes insipidus has nothing to do with glucose. Um, it shares some symptoms with diabetes mellitus, which is probably how they like both their diabetes. But diabetes mellitus um, affects the kidney's ability to concentrate the urine, 
So it is causing excess urination, but it has nothing to do with glucose, and therefore there's no sugar in the urine, making it tasteless. So maybe that was helpful to you. I was like mind blown by this last week, but maybe everyone else knows these things. Anyway, so this feels like a nice time to switch colors. What are we thinking? We could do pink. I'm kind of feeling gray. I center pulled and that was a bad idea. Oh well, okay, we'll go with this. The Greeks thought to exercise, especially on horseback, would benefit those with diabetes and would reduce their frequent need to urinate. Otherwise, their treatment was mostly diet-based. Non-irritating milk and carbs, easily digestible foods like veal and mutton, rancid animal food, green vegetables, carb-free food, or fasting. Non-food-related treatment methods were tobacco, baths wearing flannel or silk, massages, and avoiding stress. 200 BC China brought the Chinese Hippocrates named Cheng Chung Ching, who again described this condition of polyuria, excessive urination, polydipsia, excessive thirst, and weight loss. Medications for diabetes included narcotics like opium, ammonium sulfide, digitalis, magnesia, chalk, and potassium and lithium salts. Unsurprisingly, none of these ancient treatment methods were especially helpful in management of diabetes mellitus. In ancient Rome in the 100s BC, physician Galen termed polyuria due to diabetes, diabetes diarrhea uronoma, or diarrhea of the urine, and recorded that he had only ever seen two people with the condition, meaning it was seemingly more rare than today in which 10% of Americans experience diabetes. Before Galen, though, physician Aratius wrote the following regarding diabetes. Diabetes is a wonderful affection, not very frequent among men. The course is the common one, namely the kidneys and the bladder. For the patients never stop making water, but the flow is incessant. The nature of the disease then is chronic and it takes a long period to form, but the patient is short-lived. If the constitution of the disease be completely established, for the melting is rapid, the death speedy. Moreover, life is disgusting and painful. Thirst, excessive drinking, which, however, is disproportionate to the large quantity of urine, for more urine is passed, and one cannot stop them either from drinking or making water. Or, if for a time they abstain from drinking, their mouth becomes parched and their body dry, they are affected with nausea, restlessness, and a burning thirst, and at no distant term they expire. Thirst as if scorched up with fire, but if it increased still more, the heat is small indeed, but pungent and seated in the intestines. The abdomen shriveled, veins protuberant, general emaciation, when the quantity of urine and thirst have already increased, and when at the same time the sensation appears at the extremity of the member, the patients immediately make water. So I don't really know what that meant, but something about lots of urine and excessive thirst and death. So, again, at this time, diabetes 
was much more rare than it is now. So it's kind of mind-blowing how Eratius was able to make these observations with such little experience with the condition. But clearly, the few cases he did see did not end well. In the 300s AD, doctors in India and China made a distinction between type 1 and type 2 diabetes, associating type 2 with the heavier, wealthier, likely less active, and more indulgent population. At this time, people thought the diabetes mellitus was a kidney condition, and it was not until the 1700s that a doctor discovered a link between diabetes mellitus and trauma to the pancreas. In China, in the 1600s, Chen Chuan named the condition Sao Ko Ping, which I cannot find the English translation of, so I don't know what that means. However, Chuan's colleague suggested treatment for this condition include abstaining from wine, salt, and sex. In the 700s, it was noticed that diabetic patients were prone to developing furuncles, rodent ulcers, and impaired eyesight. Around 1000, the El Canun, or Canon of Medicine, written uh, by physician Avicenna, added gangrene and sexual dysfunction as more effects of diabetes. In the next century, Moises Maimonides added acidosis to the growing list of symptoms. In the 1600s, Dr. Thomas Willis wrote a book chapter about diabetes titled Pissing Evil, and he was the first to coin the term mellitus when describing these similar types of diabetes. Willis was also able to theorize that diabetes mellitus was not a disorder of the kidneys, but rather the blood. He attributed causes of the condition to include an unhealthy lifestyle, excessive alcohol consumption, and depression. And he added neuropathy and muscle twinging to the list of symptoms. Though Willis could not explain the reason behind the sweet urine of diabetes mellitus, he was able to suggest a diet of slimy vegetables, rice, and white starch. Supplemented with milk, with the addition of rhubarb, cinnamon, egg whites, cypress tops, gum arabic, and gum dragant. This dietary treatment method seemed to improve his patient's conditions, but the patient fell back into his old diet within a month. In the 1770s, Dr. Matthew Dobson confirmed the presence of high levels of glucose in the urine of diabetes patients giving an explanation for the sweet taste that had been known for the past millennium. Dobson was also able to observe that diabetes was either chronic or fatal, again making the distinction between what is now known as type 1 and type 2 diabetes. 1, 2, 3, 4, Next, I can either do pink or green. What do we think? I'm feeling green. I think we need a darker color. Otherwise, then. Chaos is ensuing. Maybe I'll just hold this. In the 1800s, French researcher Claude Bernard made invaluable contributions to the study of diabetes and metabolism. Bernard was a large proponent of animal research, 
not so good, and began studying dogs with the hypothesis that diabetes was a problem of the lungs not removing glucose from the bloodstream. Using diet changes and countless blood draws from various veins on these dogs, he was able to determine that glucose in the liver, which he named glycogen, was a substantial component of diabetes mellitus. After this discovery, Bernard continued his experiments regarding diabetes and was able to artificially induce diabetes that existed for less than a day by using a needle to stimulate a specific part of the brain's central nervous system. This experiment was able to make a correlation between diabetes mellitus and glucose homeostasis affected by the brain. It was not until around this time that gestational diabetes, a form of diabetes mellitus experienced during pregnancy, made its way into medical literature. German physician Heinrich Benowitz treated a pregnant woman with an unquenchable thirst and cloudy stale urine, and after a 12-pound stillbirth, her symptoms resolved naturally. It is now known that this abnormally large fetus was caused by the excess blood sugar being stored as fat in the fetus, and this baby was unable to be birthed safely due to its large size. I'm feeling like I want to switch again already. I think I'm going to switch over to pink. We're just really going crazy today, guys. We are just following our heart better or worse and also like not counting very well. Alrighty, so in the 1880s researchers Joseph von Marien and Oscar Minkowski discovered that removing a dog's pancreas led to the development of diabetes and quickly death. Von Marien then autopsied the dog and made the discovery that its urine was comprised of 12% glucose. Now, I was not able to do math to figure out um, what normal glucose in urine should be, but I've, it's not very much, so <laughs> you came here to learn. Aren't you learning something? I'm so sorry. In 1910, Sir Edward Albert Sharpie Schaefer hypothesized the cause of diabetes being a lack of chemical produced by the pancreas. He coined the term insulin, meaning island, because it was produced in the islets of Langerhans in the pancreas. A decade later, in the 1920s, Frederick Bontine and Charles Best removed these insulin-producing islets from a healthy dog and inserted them into dogs with diabetes, effectively curing them and discovering the hormone insulin. Bontine, Best, and two other researchers removed a cow's pancreas to extract and purify insulin for use in humans with diabetes. The next year, they were able to treat a 14-year-old named Leonard Thompson with injectable insulin and manage the condition for 13 years before he died from pneumonia. In the 1300s, Sir Harold Percival Hemsworth officially distinguished between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. He defined type 2 diabetes as not an insulin deficiency, but an insulin intolerance, in which their pancreas could produce insulin, but struggled to properly utilize it to lower blood sugar, resulting in need to lower intake of glucose. 
With this being the case, people with type 2 diabetes would overproduce insulin, adding stress to and damaging the pancreas. While type 1 diabetes was not in an ability to use insulin, rather the pancreas being unable to create any or enough insulin to properly remove glucose from the bloodstream. Thank you to Medical News Today, the World Journal of Diabetes, and the Embryo Project Encyclopedia for the information used in today's episode. And it is time for interviews with real-life sick people because we have not one, not two, but three interviews today. I'm very excited. Um, so first off, we will hear from my friend Liza, who has type 1 diabetes. What was your initial reaction when you were diagnosed? It was kind of confusing. I was only 12 at the time and had no idea what it was. The idea that I would now live with it forever was also very hard to come to terms with. What are your top survival strategies for your condition? Always pack more than you think you need when going out of town. Keep snacks everywhere. You never know when you'll need one. What is the best thing to come from your condition? Not sure. All of it kind of sucks. What do you wish the general public knew about your condition? Also not sure. I feel like most people have a pretty good idea of what diabetes is. Are there any groups or organizations related to your condition that you want to plug? JDRF or the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. From a quick Google search, JDRF is a nonprofit focusing on supporting research of type 1 diabetes and those with the condition. Uh, JDRF funds research programs for improved treatment and a cure, offers education to kids with type 1 diabetes and their parents, and offers support groups for those affected by the disease. And next is my dad, who has type 2. What was your initial reaction when you were diagnosed? Shock, regret, and sadness. What are your top survival strategies for your condition? I don't necessarily think of surviving. I think about managing my condition with diet, exercise, activity, meds, and lifestyle choices. What is the best thing to come from your condition? I am more mindful of my lifestyle choices and how they affect my future health, especially in my relationship with food. What do you wish the general public knew about your condition? Many people have type 2 diabetes, but don't know. It should be checked with every annual physical exam. Denial and avoidance of treatment will only lead to greater health complications in the future, such as vision loss, amputation, and heart problems. Are there any groups or organizations related to your condition that you want to plug? Your doctor or medical provider, along with a registered dietitian, are your best friends in managing type 2 diabetes. And lastly is my friend Jenna, who experienced gestational diabetes with all of her pregnancies. Special shout out to Jenna, because I think I texted her these questions at like 10 o'clock last night, and she responded by 10.45. So I think that is the fastest turnaround <laughs> that I've ever gotten. So big shout out to Jenna. This is your medal that I promised. What was your initial reaction when you were diagnosed? 
I had gestational diabetes four times. The first time I got diagnosed, I cried hard. I felt so upset and scared and overwhelmed, and I didn't understand anything about it, so I had no idea what to eat for like a week until I could go to the class. The next three pregnancies, I was disappointed each time I found out. I didn't want to deal with the hassle and was concerned that it was hard on my body having it over and over. What are your top survival strategies for your condition? Once I learned how to count carbs, it got easier. Having a good list of snack options and safe restaurants helps a lot. What is the best thing to come from your condition? I didn't realize how many carbs I'd been eating at the time. I learned how to read food labels and make healthier food choices even though my diabetes resolved after each birth. I eat much better than I did before. I'm way more aware. What do you wish the general public knew about your condition? Mostly, I just wish restaurants would offer better vegetable side options. Being allergic to lettuce makes this extra hard. So again, big thank you to Liza, my dad, and Jenna for being willing to share a bit about their experiences. Um, I will link JDRF and the resources I used to research in the show notes. I would not say that this is a hat yet, but we're getting there. It's like, it's better than when we started. Thank you for listening to today's episode. As always, if you have a topic suggestion or you have a condition that you would be willing to talk to me about, comment or head on over to my Instagram at MariaMakesMakes and DM me or comment there. I would love to talk to you and hear your suggestions. Um, Subscribe on YouTube, Maria Hegerman. Like, comment, share with your friends, give me a rating. As always, I suppose, stay safe, stay healthy, and I will see you next time. Bye!